Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Do you know that St. Ignatius of Loyola is on Twitter? <laughs> he is. He is. It turns out that Thomas Merton is too. And when I troll and I, when I'm doing, when I'm scrolling, I stop for a minute and I try to really concentrate on what they're saying. And I think that's what you have to do with poetry too. So I really appreciate your concentration. You know, it's like what's said in the Bible listen, Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. That's what we have to do, and sometimes that's hard, but we try. So, um, I would like to read a couple of short snippets from Jacoponi de Todi, just very brief ones. In God, the spiritual faculties come to their desired end, lose all sense of self and self-consciousness, and are swept into infinity. And the second one, love beyond all telling, Goodness beyond all imagining, light of infinite intensity glows in my heart. The book has a lot of historical figures in it, and the historical facts are literally true. I just made up what was going on in their heads. There's a lot of architects in the book, too, but I don't want you to be worried because I don't know anything about architecture either, okay? So no problem there. Uh, first poem I'm going to read is called Bathroom Journey. It's about the assemblage and collage artist, Joseph Cornell. And um, if you ask me who influenced me, I might say Cornell even more than other poets because he was so obsessed with cutting and pasting. His dates are 1903 to 1972. Say blossom to me, and even the dogwoods I grew up among in New York appear as the ones interspersed with the loblolly pines of deep East Texas, where I live now. How delicate and unafraid to die they are, the copper of the pines needles buff buffing the blossom surfaces, their resin infusing the blossoms with their fragrance as they spin off the dogwood trees and flurry through shafts of sunlight, unfolding at the tree's feet and what they know will be perfect circles. Joseph Cornell never worried about how things assembled, even when they had never met. They came to him in cross-section as he'd sit at his kitchen table with items cut out from magazines. Medieval princes, constellations, swans, and items he had found. Stamps, threads, pennies, and bathrobe journey, as he called it, combining items and collages, which would set their margins to sliding and merging and singing, just as they sang in the room of his head. I can imagine Cornell taking dogwood blossoms home from the nursery he worked at, feeling their shape and texture whisper to him as he rubbed them between his thumb and forefinger and they dropped into his breast pocket, thinking that placed against the right fabric, they'd be like tiny mirrors or perforations. But maybe when he fanned them out on his kitchen table, they didn't splice into anything else. And he heard trains in the distance sounding their horns, making the sky breathe in, breathe out. 
and, and he thought they could just as easily, easily be boats sunning their horns in Nyack, where he grew up. Maybe he slid the window pane open and nestled the blossoms on the, ed on the ledge. Maybe he blew on them like a wish to float away and return on the water. The next poem I'm going to read is called Almanac for the Wrong Region. And um, Herman Melville makes a short, just a brief appearance, which I think is very appropriate since he was such an epic cut and paster himself. Melville, for example, would sit at his desk at the customs house, grateful for the work and unable to filter the images flashing through him, as if his travels had thinned his bones and left gaps between them, leaving seams of skin which would never line up evenly. A man of reconfigured parts, his edges so frayed he could hear breezes through them. My body is an almanac for the wrong region also, honed to that kind of sunlight that gives snow a metal snell, smell as it approaches and falls, and a blue lining as it accumulates. I know to listen for the coming of geese and can name the date they arrive. I, too, flash on useless information. The sound of snow sliding off a pitched roof and falling into snow, covering the ground. A sound so, so soft it is the color of sound. And I know waiting on it to come and to season is as useless as waiting for rain in this Texas drought, in which foundations are shifting and cracking and doors are swelling out of their frames and the freight trains thrown off sparks are catching the dry grass, leaving streaks of fire in their wakes. I lie in bed trying to imagine where I'll be when it rains again and the form it will take, a tropical downpour from a Gulf hurricane, a thunderstorm from a cold front slips south, or a casual shower from a Pacific front. I know what to listen for no matter the form, the sound of trees dripping in the thaw after an ice storm, Relieved to give up their sharp edges and solid colors, the whole world weeping, reconfiguring itself, weeping and healing. <clears throat> Next poem is called That Being Said. There's about three different historical figures in here, but I think they get explained as we, as we do it. Um, part of this is inspired by a photograph that appeared in National Geographic also. That being said, no one ever told the mural that is the sky that we can only see her in segments. But because we try to piece them together, we can imagine the sight of Galileo leading the elders of Venice to the tops of towers to see for themselves the sails on the ships at sea through his telescope many miles and several hours beyond the realm of the naked eye. Galileo recording in his journal that he was seized with the beauty of the thing. That being said, on May 27, 1931, August Picard became the first to reach the stratosphere in the pressurized cabin of a balloon. He poses for a picture in which he wears a sewing basket for a helmet, and his expression is so happy that he doesn't even look silly, but steadfast, is only a man sporting spectacles and ribbons to serve as a chin strap can look. Picard has undone them so they look like upside down suspenders, something a handsome man would not dream of getting away with. That being said, 
John Glenn sees the lights of Perth, Australia, as he orbits above, every one of its inhabitants staying awake to hail him, checking their clocks so all the lights go on at the exact same moment. And I can imagine the ticker tape parade for him, Glenn looking up to glint's ribbons of paper arcing out from the windows of building, buildings and sifting down onto his shoulders as they lose velocity. And he waves back to the citizens of Perth, seized with the beauty of the thing. Next poem is a long poem. It's called The Cut and Paste Country. It's about the American architect George Franklin Barber. And his dates are 1854 to 1915. You can find the country closest to George Franklin Barber's heart by flipping through his cottage souvenir in which he engraved his plans for a town's worth of houses and stores and churches on design cards he threaded together with a length of yarn. He was perpetually unclasping cards from all their neighbors and easing them down onto different lots, watching the layout and sequence of streets so that each structure matched with the ambitions of its imaginary locations. He would attach one catalog's worth of experiences to the next in 20 years of revision and enlargement, evolving adaptions and versions, and string out his town's borders to include the best elements of light, weather, texture, of color and climate and season, which would come back to him from all the places he had lived, Marmoton, Kansas, DeKalb, Illinois, Knoxville, Tennessee, as surely as the locomotives, which coupled more cars together and took up more acreage as they tracked west. So, so by the time they appeared in central Texas, they were as endless as the prairie they would traverse. From Barbara's viewpoint, some miles different, distant, the cars would look for all the world like perfect squares cut out from the sky and pasted to the horizon with a length of yarn, which ran parallel to his, making a loop, making a repository of all the places it passed through. Barber worked as if he could engineer his own cut and paste country, always trying to encompass and reassemble every text he studied to become a self-made architect, from Bucknell's village builder to carpentry and woodworking to the Bible. He wanted to go forward into his work with the exuberance of Psalm 104, which Barber would walk through with his eyes closed, murmuring its lines, never deciding how all God's finished work was held together in such a delicate frame and how every word of it worked through the hands of the builder of everything, laying the foundations of the earth and sending the springs into the valleys and planting trees and appointing the moon for the seasons. Barbara always paused at stanza 26, where the whale is playing. He sees it breach, but isn't able to get any closer than the interval before the sound of its spouting, spouting decays. Already the water droplets spinning in the sun, which Barbara would tuck inside his throat, his thoughts, and his prayers. So they would run through his designs, which to this day can be recognized in houses still standing in Georgetown and Weatherford, Tyler and Houston Heights, the elements of his style distinctive enough to echo in structures which have been renovated or demolished, moved to unknown locations or informed by him, 
all as speckled and spotted and worn as Barber himself aged, because each time he wanted to start a new project, the man whom for all the world looked too delicate to even be able to carry a tune, would flip through his most recent catalogs and was encouraged to, to realize that his best designs long to manifest the form and massing of psalms, which are generous enough for additions and deletions or revisions and can adapt to any language or tempo, being propelled as they are by a design which varies and repeats, a design which is carried out through breath, which is spirit. I'd like to read a couple poems about joy. And the first one is, um, took place on Interstate 45. Even when encountering difficulty on I-45, you could be swept up in a parade of Mozart from the car of the person behind you. And there you'd be, simply grace and form and color when you thought you were worrying. But then, of course, the Mozart car flies around you. Even so, one morning my car entered a curve at the same moment the cattle on a hill and the grove of trees they were grazing in levitated themselves up to the sun, levitated them, blah, 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 up to the sun as if they had known Chagall their whole lives. Though maybe it was the sun which was raising like a knee from under a blanket, causing a motion like plates on a juggler's stick, wobbly but certain, or the way a merry-go-round seems to dip, just as the place you slap it to make it go faster, so quiet, you know it, you know it has stopped going, even after you're long gone and it has stopped. I should have bought that other pair of glasses. <laughs> This is called The Theory of Everything, and it comes from a very frustrating experience. I was listening to the radio, and I had to go into the pantry, and when I came out, I realized that I'd missed something very important. Wouldn't you know that just as the radio announcer for the Texaco Saturday Opera Series says, and that is what makes music happen, I'm emerging from my pantry trying to do the week's cooking and to learn opera at the same time, alto, soprano, tenor, bel canto. But I imagine the father and son I saw embrace on the balcony of the Lubbock, Texas Holiday Inn to be a part of it, the way they wrapped themselves around each other in a clasp, which was two, two shapes, blending and interlocking and becoming a third, articulating love. And I should include the ducks too, which I could see floating through the loops of their elbows in a ditch between the parking lot and the backs of the new condos, which the ducks called a pond, just as Lubbock, Texas on the South Plains calls its newspaper, which I was just about to pull from a vending machine, the avalanche ledger. The ducklings trailed their mother in a perfect rippled V, the space between each of them an interval in which I could hear the static the fading stars were making. And they didn't even know how hard Henry Moore worked to get the same melodic curve right. By now, my pastor has chanted, the Lord calls the most unlikely for a month of Sundays. And father and son have checked out, and the pond has been filled in for lawns. 
but I will call what I was hearing the hum of earth which embraces us, the pitch and rhythm of the universe, the language of praise, the theory of everything, alto, soprano, tenor, bel canto. I'd like to th read three poems or so about crazy people. And um, another reason by, why Jacopone de Todi is a man after my own heart is his nickname was Crazy Jim. Um, this is called Frederick Tudor Regains His Sanity. And I'll give you his, his dates here, 1783 to 1864. True enough, there was the coal mine which played out to nothing. The speculation in coffee futures which left him bankrupt. And the letters to Thomas Jefferson about his design for a sailboat, the Black Swan, which were never answered. And there is no denying that his excellent and simple proposition to harvest ice in Boston and to ship it to Havana did not succeed at first, and people thought he was crazy. But after the season that the shipments had to be suspended due to war with England, the season that Tudor was sent to prison for debt, the season that the ice housekeeper came down with yellow fever, the season that a sales agent was skimming a percentage and the season that Tudor had a nervous breakdown, he began to turn a profit, and people said he was perseverant. Next poem is called Agecroft Hall, which is actually um, located in Virginia. When I feel like a tourist in my own sense of reason, and I seem to have joined the ranks of the misfits the drunks, the disturbed, when my physical energy leaves me and my prospects fail me, when it's only a matter of time before my attorney walks away, when my own voice goes from being questionable to unreliable to untrustworthy, when I feel like pieces of myself are being pilfered and lost and scattered, and I long for harmony and logic, simplicity and clarity, symmetry and balance, when I've taken to thinking that what is broken can never be reassembled, I walk around Agecroft Hall in my sleep, soaking up its elegance of line and correctness of proportion. And like any normal tourist, I call to mind the story of Thomas C. Williams, how in 1929 he bought a Tudor manor house built in Lancashire, England in the late 17th century how Williams had the house broken down piece by piece, divided into thousands of crates, and then had it put back together again in Richmond, Virginia, making it whole again, even in a different century and in a different country, making it whole again. Next poem is, uh, I thank the field of psychiatry for the title. It's called According to the Diagnostic Manual You Have. Maybe it's just the disorder talking, the way I have trouble sorting out the places I've lived into separate states, New York, Texas. They blur together the way my great aunt loses a year or five when I show her an old picture and she mistakes one brother for another, 
who should have been dead by the time it was taken. And she figures the background looks like a pub in the old country, but then again, it could be the Bronx. The places I've lived line up together like a row of attached brownstones, separate dwellings but one solid block, possible to walk from one roof to the next, the same neighbors going in and out each day, like foliage or furniture. Their noises and smells mingling with mine through air shafts and windows as if they shared the same rooms with me. People in the city confuse inside and outside anyway, placing lawn chairs between the bottoms of their stoops and the gates of their wrought iron fences to watch passers-by like TV. But look, one afternoon in Central Texas, I saw Black Eyed Susans for the first time that year, and they went on for two miles, a million of them, each identical to the other, because they wanted so badly that year to stay visible and be remembered that even the sun tried to help them, with no brownstones or trees around to contradict them, making the yellows and the browns so bright I could hear them droning. Mercy, they sounded like bagpipes. And I thought of, if that this was the disorder talking, that's fine. The next poem I'm going to read is probably the shortest poem in the book. It's called Catching the Rope. And there's an epigraph here from a book called um, Buffalo Nation. And in it, the C, uh, chief of the Sioux called Red Cloud was describing all the ways that you could use buffalo ropes and uh, buffalo hides. And part of it was its hide furnished boats, ropes, and so I took that. His ability to see the possibility of a boat or a rope in a buffalo hide is called faith or vision. Not seeing or considering the death of the buffalo or of his tribe took faith too. Otherwise, he wouldn't have thrown the rope to shore. Even then, in an invisible process, the river was turning to sand, the sand to stone. Even then, he knew his vision was a rope whistling through the empty air, which was becoming my hands. The Greenland problem um, is based on or inspired by an article I read in National Geographic, and it mentions a Mercator projection map. And you might recall that those are the ones where the continents are horizontal, like in a row, and so that's what that's referring to. Think how flat the soul is on Earth, distorted as Greenland on a Mercator projection map, as if someone pressed it down with a rolling pin, and how Greenland is actually a land of ice where scientists extract from, from long tubes placed in the permafrost, snow which fell thousands of years before, one snowfall layered on top of the other, upper canopy, lower canopy, and understory, looking for elements of the sky by mining, although there comes a point at which no, one snowfall has collapsed into another, like houses in an earthquake no, or fire, no age recognizable from another, all understory, surpassing understanding, round and indivisible. 
Do you know the William Carlos William poems about the, the wheelbarrow? This is a response to that poem. It's called The Unreliable Witness. But don't ask me. I tell you, it doesn't depend upon a wheelbarrow or where the chickens are or notes, or notes about plums placed on refrigerators as much as it does upon the angle of your body being the way you see the water blazing on the wheelbarrow's surface. I mean, it really could be anything as long as it doesn't depend upon you for its beauty and provided you see the individual thing and its structure at the same time. But don't take my word for it. If you do, the, the wheelbarrow might shimmer or it could vibrate and you'll know hearing it singing that you've witnessed an ordinary instance of grace. I imagine that there's some people in this room who may have experienced not being able to write when you really want to. And this poem is about that. Now, if you're sitting in this room and you've never experienced that, I'm very jealous of you. But And then on a day's when, day when a poem is the first thing on my mind, I pile up excuses for why it won't come, like debt and dry cleaning, and I forgot to buy detergent, and did he really mean that? Even though I don't feel like meeting expenses or negotiating curves or being cautiously optimistic, the poem won't come. When I'm convinced I left the burner, burner on, or I'm standing there in my square dance costume, waiting for the poem to join in, it sound not there because I'm listening for it, it won't come. Even if I stand on my front porch, arms akimbo, waiting on it, it won't come as a door to be traveled through, but as a gate, which is so familiar, I don't notice it, hearing it creak open inside my and outside my body at the same time. Next one is called What is Beautiful About This City. This place is not like a field, which you open your arms to and simply enter. The way to occupy this city is to filter things out or pretend the thin line of trees that border the park are a hundred deep. Concentrate on the shadow the tree throws on the red brick house every morning rather than the tree itself. Watch how the windows fall into the shadow and drift in the leaves. Or lie on the floor in front of your window and open the blinds. Position yourself so the only thing you see is the tree and not roofs or people on the sidewalk. See how the, lay, the leaves sway to support you. Lie in bed at night in a rainstorm and listen to the vibration. Let it hold you. Fall asleep in the rain, and the rain will arrive from everywhere you've ever been. What is beautiful about this city is the way it constantly reinvents itself, the way my brother is alive and standing in the middle of the field, right outside the window, his arms open. Next poem is about Frederick Church, who was a very famous uh, painter, but something befell him, and he wasn't able to paint anymore. 
And I really like what he did um, in response to that. His dates are 1826 to 1900. This is Frederick Church's imagined country. Then when Church was certain that his arthritis would prevent him from ever producing landscapes like a quieter spirit or panoramas such as Heart of the Andes again, he began to search his memory of buildings he had seen in Beirut, Damascus, and Jerusalem. He began to collect a lexicon of Persian elements by studying architectural book plates of flat roofs, tiles, and horseshoe arches. And it was in this way that Church fantasized about building a Persian castle. He would call it Olana, or Place on High, and he cited it so that every wide doorway rimmed in silver and gold, every south and west-facing window which reached from floor to ceiling, would surround each guest in a panorama of the Hudson River and Catskill Mountains. And after he assembled Turkish carpets and Moorish tiles and Near Eastern brass, per Persian vases and Kashmiri chairs for the interiors, he chose hemlocks and spruces to be planted on the grounds for their silhouettes to echo the lines in the Moorish tower. And finally, he raged ranged birches and maples and oaks into a series of landscapes to line the carriage road so that Olana could be seen rising from them for its entire length. And when he was finished, Church stocked his library with the books he had used to build it. And it was in this way that Olana became a landscape, then a panorama over and over again. <coughs> Next poem is a long poem. It's called, If You'd Like to Make Your Past a Foreign Country. And the thing about it is, um, I have to tell you here that the historical facts here are literally true, uh, but they're so over the top, I think you have to admire them. If you'd like to make your past a foreign country, you may as well consider yourself a Texan, like the migrants who came by covered wagon through the Louisiana swamps, or over the Texas road to the eastern edge of Indian country, having told their neighbors they were headed for the land of beginning again. You'll have plenty of elbow room to try on your better selves here. We have more space between towns than there is between some eastern states. No one will mind if it takes you some time to arrive. After all, Texas was a part of Mexico and an independent republic in an annexed state of the U.S., and a member of the Confederacy before it figured out it was meant to be the Lone Star State. You wouldn't stand out in a place where Sam Houston ran away from home at age 15 to live with the Cherokees, became governor of Tennessee, but resigned when his wife left him, became the Republic's first president, but was tossed out as governor of the state of Texas and took to wearing a vest with leopard spots on it as he built a house in Huntsville, which looks exactly like a steamboat. Best of all, Texas takes up so much country that it is three different growing seasons, which makes spring from south to north happen over and over. So if you miss the mockingbirds feeding on the hackberry trees on Valentine's Day in Harlingen, if you've been so depressed even the roar of the alligators on St. Patrick's Day at Brazos Bend 
weren't able to rouse you? If you stayed in your pajamas the Monday of the third week in March, in which the Tarrant County Sheriff's deputies changed their hats from felt to straw? If the fact that the Indian paintbrush decided to bloom right on schedule, even though they knew the drought would blunt their colors, makes you want to stop them? If the mesquite has greened up in every one of the 254 counties of Texas except yours, you can always go to East Texas, even from the post oak savanna where the sun bleaches everything out and makes the crepe myrtles think the sky is white. The Sam Houston National Forest is only an hour away. The loblolly pines are so confident there their branches don't even begin for 50 feet into the blue sky. And the way the sun slants through them gives everything a green luster, which encloses you as gently as water. In their shadows, the, the dogwoods are as delicate as lace because they are not afraid to become something else. This is how you'll know what the light of understanding is. The dogwoods will let go of their white blossoms and they will flurry through the pine's auburn needles, and the sound of the blossom's descent will be absorbed into the cry of the blue heron, here to remind you of the promise of God, the land of beginning again. Irrational acts is based on something that really happened when I lived in a town in um, central Texas. The morning after the tornado hit and two dozen people were found dead, I heard it announced on the radio that 20 other people were still missing. The reporter said that these people's remains would never be recovered, that the tornado just up and took them into the sky while they were still alive. Before this became routine, the home video footage used as a commercial to brag about the accuracy of the weathermen, the building supply store insisting that it would never raise prices at this, but they would be making credit cheaper if y'all want to take advantage of that. I spent all day at work wondering what it had been like to vanish along with their houses, their streets, and the cars in their driveways. And wouldn't you know some state official said it wouldn't be rational to require people in Texas to have basements, even though the only guy who survived on his block had spent two years with a pickaxe and a bucket digging one. This says the missing people were returning to Earth with every possession gone, people citing them going about their business, their names checked off by the Red Cross. Simple as that, they became a living again with no desire to build basements. All the, more, all the months, not April, um, deals with a rite of passage um, that I know I went through, um, and I guess we all have to. All the months, not April. And when, when my parents took in boarders and called them aunt and uncle, someone else had to tell me that they weren't. This was like being the only kid in class who thought a rubber was for my foot, or the first time I knew my father was drunk instead of tired. 
These things happened the same, same April. I was shown the black and white film of the man on the bulldozer surrounded by corpses. We were told to write down Holocaust. He is plowing them up and letting them fall into the scoop and driving to the pit and dropping them in. They bounce up from the stack of bodies underneath them, then flail their legs and settle. It's the first time I've seen people nude and can understand it's not sexual. The bulldozer sounds delicate in the silence of the bodies. They have been snowing for so many seasons that the path to the pit is filling in again, and the driver is afraid of tipping over, and he is only one man in one sector, which is all the screen is wide enough to hold. The man works in all the months, not April, like the stars in the city, which are washed out by the light and traveling in their courses, and the new crescent and full phases of the moon. And when he comes into view once more, he's no closer to finishing than he was that first April, sounding like a chant, so close to breath, I'm reminded it's his work and not the gears of my own body. I read something in the New York Times, and I just was trying to figure out what was going through this person's head. And I think the epigraph kind of explains the whole thing. This is called The Deaf Composer. And the headline from the New York Times was, in Japan, beloved deaf composer appears to be none of the above. You can never go wrong with using your real name. And I did. I just pushed things too far with the Beethoven routine. You know, deaf composer hears the music in his heart. It's not my fault that I did pensive so well or that I had the right hair and teeth. Okay, I like the adulation more than the money even. How could I know that my ghostwriter would go out and make a public confession without telling me first. Everyone feels sorry for him, and two people can't repent of the same sin. That leaves me an empty suit, a fraud. People are going to say, there's no there there. So my natural caution deserted me. So I stepped off the wiser course 18 years ago and into missteps and lies and whispers I just didn't want to be a music instructor at a no-namer in university like my ghostwriter is. I'm too disgusted to utter his name with his humility and sweaters and sloped shoulders. It's being said that I dominated him, that I didn't live by fact, truth, or logic. Now I have to distance myself from my own assertions, and I will need my public to go through the how-could-you phase I will need to go through the death threats of the unhinged and the lawsuits of the aggrieved with depositions and affidavits, injunctions, motions, and countermotions, and gag orders. There will be the embarrassments and difficulties of rehab, since there must be something wrong with someone who would take someone else, else's music as his own. My public will think he's as sick as a secret, and I'll have to emerge from obscurity saying, I've developed a teachable spirit. I'll have to say, I was a different person then. 
but the tone, pitch, and rhythm of my ghost music is now part of my inner architecture. You can't fix the wind any more than you can make two brothers' voices sound like they're from different families. I feel like I'm being kicked out of my own heart, and I've been dropped off in the outskirts with empty pockets left to fend for myself. I'm like a schizophrenic now, shrouding to be heard over the voice in my head. If deafness is not being able to hear your own inner voice, then I'm deaf. Next poem is called Midlife. And it doesn't matter if you're, you're not middle-aged, it's anybody in the middle of life. Sometimes you have to make something whole again and to take every cabinet, every wall, every fixture and apply the crowbar, the hammer, the backhoe. Sometimes you have to celebrate the dust sparking up, the arthritis of rust, the scars left by the termites. There in the middle of the night, when you could be resting to live the real parts of your life, you perch in this old place, your bedroom dipped in stars like the top portion of a Ferris wheel, tearing your heart out, lit learning it was created to be cracked open. The only way you know to it invites you to sit still, your hundred errands lined under the bed like shoes, the bed gone, and you chipping, chipping at the ceiling until its ribs give way and slat after slat of sky opens up the reason you built here to begin with. This is called Also Celebrate. Also celebrate the space between the fingers of the trapeze artist who releases you and of the one who will catch you, and celebrate the shimmering green-blue space between your chin and water, your legs treading and weightless. Celebrate the slats of space made by fences, by trellises, or wind chimes, which are hinges of light, allowing us to see and to see through like screen porches. Celebrate the interlocking shapes of stones in a wall and the souls who place them together, contouring the greens of the trees and of the fields around them with something which tastes metallic. Celebrate the attached brownstones in the city. They're grinding together, igniting the red mortar in the morning light of September to the red of maple leaves. Celebrate the gray wind which cinches into a corral around us when a cold front blows through and throws our voices around. Celebrate how the coming of spring fills in space you didn't see as being empty, and you learn again the difference between what is barren and what is patient. Celebrate the way the sun drives the sky to unfold in, again into summer, and the heat washes out color, allowing you to see the space between birds or flags or tides, which is what makes their formation also celebrate the space between rungs in a ladder, or trees in an orchard, or stars in the sky, between tongue and groove, or your hip and mine. Celebrate the space revealed only to you between being born 
and dying. The third way is another short one. And it's actually meant, was originally the last one, but I think I read so fast <laughs> that if you have a request, I'd be happy to read a poem for you. Did you see the front page of the Times? Picture of two galaxies colliding. We're watching it for practice since our own is also colliding with another. Impact should occur in about three billion years. Do I need another death scene to imagine? Can you look at that picture and imagine yourself in a galaxy? Can you imagine ours? Once I'm dust, and aren't I dust now, floating around in some world? I know I'll die of one, a disease, and know it, or two, suddenly, and not know it. But look, this morning the moon followed me almost the whole way on my drive to work, all belly and not embarrassed, floating through the galaxy and tethered to me as if she had been expecting me for three billion years, tugging on me to die a third way, to die a fierce love. Would you like a couple of more or should I? Okay. I'll read Vivaldi Drifting. I think this is the job of every poet, um, it, which is explained here. And there was Vivaldi coming in from a Dallas station only because it happened to be early and clear out. And there was the freight train moving in time to Vivaldi, and there was my car running parallel to the train, which was approaching on its raid sped from the opposite direction, the word beautiful uttering and obscuring this in the same way the freight's headlight illuminated part of the train and concealed it in its glare. So the train glided out in the darkness and into, in, into being one segment at a time. I had no doubt the engineer was there, his face lost in the light, just as to him, I was a silhouette. And there was the light splintering as the train came out of a bend, the sparks of, the sparks of darkness in between like dying stars. And then the dull red sun and its measured ascent rose to a point behind my car so the segment of six or so dull red cars became visible at the exact right, right time, the sun making the cars and Vivaldi in my face glow, giving us definition again, the car's ribs spaced in the same intervals as the music, moving into view and fading out in the same dance as horses on a carousel. And then Vivaldi drifted away into the central Texas dawn because I know he saw something like this. Things converging, which weren't supposed to. Things shining and singing when he happened to be the only person around. So he'd go commit himself to paper. Something similar to that, I'll read you a Vermeer song too. We talked about this today briefly in the class I was in. When Vermeer scholars tried to locate the Little Street on a map of Delft, they couldn't locate its coordinates, and they were never able to find it on their searches of the city. Now we know that Vermeer was working from memory, 
and neurologists have, dis have discovered that memory works in montages, that the scholar's task was like trying to win the, pin the wind back into place, even as it shifts and diminishes, evolves and resurfaces to refrain. So that when Ramir was looking squarely at his recollection of the street, he was struck by those colors and roof lines and arches and shutters and figures from buildings that was on his walking route that they came, back, that they came to him in the light which caused his heart to catch, all meshing together and assembling into a rhythm, becoming the little street. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.